Here's where we're at. Go ahead, open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 18. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 18 today, and uh, what's in front of us is we're in a series called Firm Foundation, and we're coming in close on these foundational aspects of faith that can make us immovable in life. And just to, to set up where we're going today, one of the most refreshing things that can happen is when someone or some group will say out loud, I got it wrong. I need to change. And that doesn't happen as much as it should in our lives, and maybe you feel like the lives of those around you. But what is one area where the church could stand to change? All right, well, there's a lot of things that might come to your mind. What is one area where the church is at risk for getting it wrong? Well, there's a lot of things that might come to your mind. But what we're going to deal with today, I think, is at the foreground of those, those questions as an answer to, and here it is in one word, unity. Unity. A divided world needs a united church. And that's where we're going today. And just understand, this is not just about a church being united. This is about you experiencing unity as an individual with those in your circle of influence as a parent, as a peer, as a son, as a daughter, as a husband, as a wife, as a student, as an employer, as an employee, whatever it is. This is about experiencing unity in your relationships in a way that can transform those relationships and also influence the world around us. And here's the thing. All of us are daily tempted to choose division instead of unity. We'll go our own way. We'll die on the wrong hills. We will cancel and we will cut off. And it's healthy for us to take a good look in the mirror before we start looking out the window at what everybody else is doing wrong. But I will say, now that we've kind of picked on the church and said it out loud that we have an issue with this, and as individuals we have an issue with this, let me just go ahead and say, the world has an issue with this. And a confused world needs a clear word. So how, how do we overcome division? How do we come to a place of true, lasting unity? Well, around Coastway, here's what we do. We go to the Word of God for a word from God. And it just so happens that God's Word is full of clear words on this idea of unity. For example, and this is just a building block into Matthew 18. We're going to get there in just a moment. But for example, here's what we all want. I'm just going to put this up on the screen for you to see. Ephesians 4, 1 through 3. This would be like what we want to see happen. And it's this, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We read that, we're like, I'll take that. I will take patient, humble people who are going to bear with me over time. I'll take the unity. I'll take the peace. We look at that and we think, that's great, but how do we do it? And that's where we just like, we miss it. We get off the tracks. And I would suggest that if Ephesians 4, 1 through 3 is what we want, Matthew chapter 18 is how we get it. And what we're looking at today is the most among, if not the most foundational teaching that we have from Jesus on how to experience Ephesians 4, 1 through 3. There's one Bible teacher who puts it this way. 
that Matthew 18 uh, is, uh, he refers to it as the single greatest discourse our Lord ever gave on life among redeemed people in his church. And so there's a lot here, and here's, here's why. The, the chapter deals with all the building blocks of unity. So we say, oh, I, wanna, I want unity in the world. I want unity in the church. I want unity in my home. Well, you're going to need all of these building blocks in order for that to be there. In this chapter, it's loaded with teaching on humility, teaching on eternity, teaching on holiness, teaching on grace, teaching on discipline, teaching on restoration, teaching on conflict resolution and forgiveness. And you walk away hearing all that, you're like, this is a pretty important chapter. Maybe we need to come in close on that, and that's what we're doing. And here's what's interesting, though, about this chapter. The word peace, the word unity, actually doesn't even show up. And yet, the irony in that is that no beautiful vision, no biblical vision for unity or peace can happen until Matthew chapter 18 happens. And what Matthew 18 is about is maintaining unity through a confrontation that leads to restoration. So Jesus is about to show us what to do when the conflict comes, when division looms. How do we stay united? So here's the big idea. If you're taking notes, maybe this could be a sticking point for you. Lasting unity is built on a foundation of restoration. Lasting unity is built on a foundation of restoration. As we'll see in just a moment, whenever there's a confrontation, the goal is not condemnation. The goal is restoration. Confrontation equals condemnation in the culture, but confrontation is intended to lead to restoration with God's kingdom people. And that's what this is all about. So Matthew 18, verse 15, let's pick up. We're going to read through verses 20. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. Gained is another word for restored. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. That would be someone who has rejected God, who's not a Christian Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. And then one of our favorite verses to quote, but we usually quote it out of context, verse 20, for where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. So there's a lot right here. And we come with our biases We come with our baggage, and we come with our questions. Anytime you read the Bible, you have to understand that you're bringing all of those things, whether you know it or not. And so what is Jesus doing right here? Well, he's laying out how to confront someone, how to correct someone in the face of everyday conflict. And we'll see this in just a moment. Conflict is inevitable, but combat is optional. And if you go about conflict Jesus-style, it doesn't have to resort to trading blows. It can actually resort, or resort to restoration, which is the whole goal. But what Jesus does right here is he's like, this is how you do it. Four 
loving steps to take when conflict comes, which the whole goal right here, not condemnation, it's resurrection, or restoration. And I, I love the way that Bible teacher David Platt offers some helpful language around these four steps. You know, we, we read the Bible and it's like, oh, that was a lot. Can you kind of organize that for me? Well, here, this is, this is what Platt does. Step one, we see that in verse 15. The first step that you take whenever conflict comes, and it, coming it is. The first step is, in verse 15, it's private correction. You want to keep the circle as small as possible, as long as possible, because you're not trying to shame or condemn anybody. All right, that's what that's about. It's loving. And then in verse 16, we see small group clarification. Again, you're trying to restore without making war. What would be a good way to do that? Don't tell everybody about it. Don't get anybody involved who doesn't necessarily need to be involved. And then step three, in the first part of 17, church admonition. So now you bring the church into it for the purpose of restoring. And finally, church excommunication. And I know there's a lot here. We're going to deal with it uh, in, in, in progression. But here's what I, I will say. My original plan was to talk about all four steps in one sermon. And then as I got into this, it hit me, we got to slow down. And here's why. Because we're dealing with one of the most difficult and delicate issues, and that's confronting someone. That's telling someone that they were wrong. And all for the purpose of restoring them gaining them, as Jesus says. And <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to say it for me. I'm going to say it for all of us. We are not good at this. We're not. We're, none of us are varsity right here, okay? We're, we're, we're all, I mean, like on the practice squad, maybe, the middle school squad, or like in the, in the peewee league with conflict resolution. We've all got a lot to, to, to know and a lot to grow in this. We're not good at it. But here's the thing. Why are we talking about it? Well, part of it is because we're not good at it, but because we all go through this, we all must grow through this. And that's the attitude that we bring anytime we're dealing with something in Scripture that Jesus is wanting to correct in us. And so today is part one of two, all right? So we're only going to look at step one today. We're, the, the rest of the sermon is going to be on Matthew 18, 15. And we're going to use the Bible to understand the Bible, and we're going to bring in these key passages that help illuminate our understanding of what is Jesus saying in Matthew 18, 15. And I'm going to read that again in just a moment, hopefully give some help and some hope along the way. It's, it's to build you up, not to beat you up. That's what this whole thing is about. And on that note, when you hear about confronting and correcting, well, it sounds a little legalistic. You might say, well, that's, that's unloving. Uh, but here's, here's what we got to do. When Jesus says something that disagrees with what we feel or think. Jesus is right, and we must change. Hello. All right? So there's a lot of humility that goes along with that. Who just taught us this? Well, this is Jesus. All right? I'm, you know, I'm not writing the mail. I'm delivering the mail. All right? So Jesus is bringing this to us as the biblical guardrails of grace for resolving conflict. And anytime Jesus gives us a tough teaching, what's that about? To build us up, not to tear us down. And so that's what this is about. A few acknowledgments, I want to just say these. First of all, so far, our young church has remained united. Remember, we're talking about unity. 
And it's not because there have not been opportunities for us to be divided. It's not because we believe the same things about all things. That's called uniformity. It's different than unity. We're not clones. Uh, it's, I think the reason why our church has stayed united is because we believe the same things about the most important things. About God. About the gospel. About the Bible. About sin. About repentance. About mission. About eternity. About identity. And I'll just tell you some of our story, if you're new to Coastway, those beliefs, those convictions have seen us through a lot of trials, have seen us through a lot of transitions, have seen us through a lot of temptations. And guess what else is coming in our future? Trials, transitions, and temptations. Let's not be naive, guys. This is coming because Satan wants to stop any legitimate work of the Spirit before it picks up steam and starts multiplying forth. And so how are we going to overcome it as it continues to come? By uniting around the gospel. The same things about the most important things. So, so far, our church has remained united. And secondly, conflict is inevitable, but combat is optional. All right, so what makes the difference on whether or not conflict turns into combat is do we just go through it or do we grow through it? And if we grow through conflict, then we're going to come to a place where we could say, I have grown to a place to where it's not comfortable, it's really hard, it's a labor of love, but I can resolve, I want to resolve conflict on God's terms instead of my own. Have you come to that place? Well, that's really the idea. You know, I, man, I look in the mirror. I look in the mirror as I was preparing this and I just see how messy this has been for me in my journey as a Christian, in my journey as a pastor, I, I think about how clumsy I have been and in many ways still am with trying to do Matthew 18. But by God's grace, there has been growth. And that's, that's the measure of success in the Christian life. It's not perfection, it's direction. Am I moving in the right direction according to uh, the grace of God? And so the invitation I'm not, I'm not teaching this as somebody who's nailed this. I'm teaching this as someone who's failed at this and who wants to grow through this. And I want to invite you, Coastway Church, could we grow together in confrontation that leads to re restoration? How we go about this. And I think that in order for us to grow together, here's an, one, more, one more acknowledgement that I want to make. Um, when we're wronged or offended, we have some choices to make, all right? And there's really only three choices when we're wronged or offended. We can peace fake, we can peace break, or we can peace make. It's really, that's, it's, it's that simple. We're going to do one of those three things. And one of the best books I've ever read, top 10, all time. Uh, you know, professors give you required reading. YouTube influencers and others maybe give you like required reading. You got to read my book, you got to read this book. Well, as your pastor, I want to give you basically a required reading if you want to really go into this, okay? Uh, the Peacemaker by Ken Sandy. It was a required reading for me in seminary, and when I started it, I was like, why do I need to read this? And I read it, and it became a guiding light for how I, I think about this, and I think it could do the same for you. Um, it will take you some time to work through it, but it will 
it will so enliven your spiritual maturity, your emotional maturity, it could really help you. So I recommend that book. But here, a lot of what I'm talking about today comes out of what God has been teaching me over the years from that book in Matthew 18. So peace faking. What is peace faking? Let's, let's get more to the point here. It's pretending things are okay when beneath the surface we're seething with anger, bitterness, resentment, and bottled hurt that we refuse to release. That's peace faking. What's the evidence? How do you, it's, it's not that hard to spot. It's actually pretty obvious. Passive-aggressive behavior, sarcastic comments, silent treatment, gossip, social shaming, withholding relationship without first going through Matthew 18. So basically, you're putting unbiblical boundaries in a relationship because you've not done your part yet to resolve it. Boundaries are important. You need boundaries. But part of how we work through and restore is we actually go through this. But peace faking doesn't even doesn't, doesn't make the effort. Uh, then there's peace breaking. Peace breaking is when we act on those feelings in ways that come out in social or even physical ways that are intended to hurt back, to pay back. So socially, it would come out through just cutting words, insulting, slandering, belittling, canceling. Physically, it would come out maybe in bullying or in the, 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 the darkest, deepest, scariest scenarios. It could come out in emotional and physical abuse and kind of the, 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 the worst example of this would actually be murder. And so what do both peace-faking and peace-breaking say? Well, they say the same thing. Vengeance is mine. I will make you pay. But what does a peacemaking gospel say? Vengeance is the Lord's. Jesus already paid. And I'm going to charge your offense to his account of grace and forgiveness with endless reserve. I don't have to charge you for this because it was paid for on Calvary's hill on the cross of Christ. And so when you understand this is how forgiveness works, if you focus on the offense, forgiveness will never make sense. But if you focus on the cross, bitterness will never make sense. And so Matthew 5, 9, Jesus, we're understanding all this together, is blessed are the peacemakers, not the peacebreakers, not the peacefakers. Church, we are called to be peace makers. And so Matthew 18, 15 is the first step. It's the building block for unity in all this. So I want us to boomerang back to Matthew 18, 15, and I want to begin to do my best to offer it in a true, real, and clear way that's going to give you some help and hope going out of here. So Matthew 18, 15, if your brother, stop there, we're dealing with the church. Okay, your brother. So what it... What, what would a brother be in context right here? It would be a spiritual brother. It would be a family member who's a part of the family of God. What does it mean to be a Christian, by the way? It means you know God is your father, the church is your family. We have a lot of siblings, brothers and sisters. That's where that comes from. And so this is intended to start in the church, not necessarily stop in the church. So when we say we, we want to see the world, the culture go a certain direction, it has to start in the church. It has to start with us first. So if your brother, the church, sins, okay, 
Give some clarity right here. Sin is anything that you think, say, or do that disobeys God's word. Think, say, do that disobeys God's word. Sin is whenever you do what feels best instead of what God says is best. And so you're led by your feelings instead of being led by your faith. And what is the result? Sin happens against you. All right, so you have been wronged. You have been offended. You have been triggered. So what happens next? Well, we're going to get there in just a moment. Galatians 6.1 is a guiding light verse for understanding Matthew 18.15. We're going to get there in a minute. In a minute. But what Galatians 6.1 says is it doesn't just limit it to if someone sinned against you. It does enlarge this step to others who are maybe close to you, who are affecting the church with, with what they're doing that is disobeying God. And so there actually is a warrant, even if it's not necessarily directly against you. We'll talk more about that in a moment. And then go and tell. What do we go and tell as Christians? It's the gospel. So this is gospel language. Understand, see conflict for what it is. It's an opportunity to bring and believe the gospel all over again in a personal way to a relationship. So what you say when you go and tell, you're going and telling the gospel. You're not going and telling them off. So forgiveness has been given by God. That's the gospel. It was purchased and provided on Calvary's Hill. And I have access to it. I've been granted forgiveness. And in this moment, I want to give it to you. I want you to experience this forgiveness as well. And then what do you go and tell Oh, him his fault? By the way, we are, uh, we are first sinners and second sinned against. So that's important to understand before we fault find, we need to look in the mirror. But you, you tell him his fault. And here's what this does. This flies in the face of America's favorite Bible verse. And America's favorite Bible verse is not John 3.16. It's Matthew 7.1. Judge not, full stop. No context, no further explanation, but it is so geared toward the Americanized vision of Christianity, which is autonomous, individualistic, and very convenient. But we're going we're gonna to rumble with Matthew 7-1 in just a few moments. But here's what I want to say. Both Satan and God will judge you for your sin, but they have two very different purposes. Satan judges you in your sin, and he whispers in your ear to trigger all those fears, anxieties, and insecurities to condemn you. But what does our loving Father do when he judges our sin? He, he judges, he points it out, he says, this is wrong. If you go down this path, you will die. And I came to bring life, and so I want to call you out of this. So God judges, why? to restore. And so here's what you have to ask when you're going to confront someone somewhere over something. Am I coming with the heart of God who judges to restore, or am I coming with the heart of Satan who judges to condemn? And so you see the difference in how we approach. This is actually loving, and it's between you and him alone. Notice that. Committed to restoring. Why would it be between you and him, you and her alone? Because you're not out to shame them. You're not out to make them feel small. You're not out to condemn them. And that's why you keep the circle as small as possible, as long as possible. And then it says, if he listens to 
you. All right, so we have two ears and one mouth. And that is to show up in how we relate to one another. So it shows up in how we receive correction. So if you are the offender being corrected by the offended, listen, open up your ears. That took a lot of courage. If it's being done biblically and appropriately and somebody is coming to you privately, they're, they're probably pretty uncomfortable and not fired up about it because it takes a lot of courage to lovingly confront And so to be a Christian is to have an ear for correction. And if you have no ear for correction, you likely are not a Christian. I am a sinner saved by grace. And that's the attitude right here. And so it shouldn't surprise me, it shouldn't surprise you when we mess up. When we have to do this. And then it says, if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. In other words, restored. So this whole chapter... Why does it it talk about a shepherd going after a lost and wayward sheep in verses 10 through 14? Because Jesus is setting the stage for what he's calling us to do in Matthew 18, 15 through 20. Restore that sheep. Don't, Don't ruin that sheep. Don't reject that sheep. Bring it back. Why does he talk about forgiveness? One of the greatest stories ever told on forgiveness in verses 21 through 35, which come right after 18, 15 through 20, it's because that's the idea. And by the way, forgiveness takes you, restoration takes two. You can forgive and not see restoration. Forgiveness is a decision that we make, and it's informed by the decision that God made to first restore and forgive us. Four questions that lift out of this. And I want to walk us through some of these questions now that we kind of have a handle on what's going on right here. This is how we function as peacemakers. This is how we correct without condemning. This is how we correct so that we can restore. Here's the first question. When should we confront? When should we confront? All right, so it takes the whole Bible to make the whole Christian. And whenever there's a passage that might be unclear, might be confusing, and we need a little clarity, what's the best way to get clarity on it? What else does the Bible say? Because the Bible is internally consistent and categorically correct. And so it's going to come together. So we're going to go, we're going to go to the verses after America's favorite, favorite Bible verse, Judge Not, and we're going to see the context, all right? I've told you guys this before. Reading scripture is like real estate, location, location, location. You want to be mindful of the location of that verse that you are quoting, lest you are quoting in malpractice. <laughs> so Matthew 7, 3 through 5. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye? We're good at that. Oh man, we're on it. But do not notice the log that is in your own eye. Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see, notice this word, clearly. Clearly. You cannot see a situation clearly until you first assess your sin contribution in the matter. And then you will be able to take the speck out of your brother's eye. All right, so here here we are. I want you, all right, just put your hand out in front of you just kind of like this. All right, you've got a log in your eye. That's that's the log, all right? And uh, maybe if you came with somebody, kind of turn to the side of them and see, like, you know, can, can you get close enough to them without knocking them with that log? Can we just do this together? All right, 
All right, and while you're doing that, by the way, just go ahead, uh, be kind, be gentle, but try to reach, reach to their eye while you're doing this, okay? Do, do you see, do, is, how's that going? Are you able to like move toward one of the most delicate body parts in the human body with precision and care and love without just whacking them? Isn't Jesus funny? I mean, who else could think about this? Do you see, you can't get close enough to a situation or to a sinner without knocking them out until you first look in the mirror. And that's what Jesus is teaching us right here. He's clearly teaching that we should not try to correct others until we first correct ourselves. Do you see it? If we don't get the log out of our eye, we won't see it. And it's always good to start with, what is my part in the issue? That's a great question. And once you've done that, you're in a much more loving place to confront and restore And in doing so, you may find that Proverbs 19.11 needs to prevail in this situation. Good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. One of the greatest, wisest, humblest peacemaking responses. Overlook it. You don't even bring it up. Whenever possible, that's what you want to do. And the best confronters are usually people who would prefer not to talk to others about their sin, but they do so anyway from a humble heart of obedience and love for God and others. And the Bible repeatedly warns against the critical heart and the critical way of the Pharisee who who finds this twisted delight in fault-finding and finger-pointing and eye-poking. you got something in your eye. Don't do that. That's not nice. Be gentle. But what do you do if something is too serious to overlook? Because you can't overlook everything. How can you know when? Well, I want to give you four questions you can ask that will help with this. First of all, is it dishonoring to God? This is where it starts. This doesn't mean we should call attention to every minor offense, but anything that significantly affects one's witness for Christ. Is it dishonoring to God? Next, is it damaging the relationship? Do you find yourself unable to forgive this person? Then maybe you need to have a conversation. And and you need to operate from the the sacrifice of, I want to forgive, but I'm struggling to forgive. Can we talk about this? And here's how you know if you're not forgiven. Your feelings, your thoughts, your words, your actions toward that person who you feel wronged you have been altered for a prolonged period of time and you've not talked to them with, about it. As I think, think about it this way. If the matter keeps sitting on you, you probably shouldn't sit on it. Otherwise, you are a sitting duck for what Hebrews 12 describes as a root of bitterness. What does a root do? Think about this with me. It goes into the ground, and it begins to spread. And the longer it stays there, the harder it is to uproot. And I know this from personal experience, because yesterday we uprooted some bushes that had been in our front yard for a little bit of time, it was sermon preparation, right? You know, no, no, it was. Uh, but the longer that a bush is in the ground, the more it takes root, the more it spreads, the harder it's going to be to get up. So you need to take that out by the root. And that's what this is about. Next question, is it hurting others? Well, this can, I mean, and this can happen in a variety of ways. The offender may be hurting others in a direct way. I mean, some obvious examples would be like drunk driving. Hey, don't ever do that again. Okay, like abuse, emotional, physical abuse. Like, that is unacceptable. That's obvious. Or they could be setting an example that encourages other Christians to stumble into the same pattern. And 
as surrendered Christ followers, as repentant people, we are called to be building blocks to Christ, not stumbling blocks to Christ. And so that would be a case for potentially confronting. Also, is it forcing people to take sides without knowing all the facts? In other words, is this person rallying a support group around their sin? Putting a hedge of protection around their uh, some, some trait or some sin that is, that is toxic, dysfunctional, and out of step with biblical counsel. And so all of these things, it, it hurts people and it stirs up division. Last question, is it hurting the offender? Is the offender hurting themselves by doing this thing? Substance abuse? I mean, outright laziness? Chronic overspending? Some foolish choice that impairs their relationship with God? and with others. And here's what we have to understand. Whether that person sees their need for correction or not, we are caring for them. We are looking out for them and their well-being by bringing it up. The next question is this. Why don't we confront sin? Why don't we confront sin? Well, I, I would say sadly, it's because we adopted this idea that everyone should be allowed to do whatever they want, whenever they want, and it just be okay. And, and, and that idea is actually more American than it is Christian. And what often happens is we'll sit back and we'll rubberneck. You know what rubbernecking is? You're driving by a car accident on the road and surveying the scene of a really ugly accident with no intentions of stopping and doing anything about it. So we will rubberneck sin and we will just go, go, go right past it and, and that's more of an American vision than it is a Christian vision. And that's not the kind of vision that Jesus demonstrated, nor is it consistent with his teachings. Some Bible for you. Proverbs 24, 11, Rescue those who are being taken away to death. Hold back those who are stumbling to the slaughter. Matthew 7, 5. You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. James 5, 19 through 20. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. So clearly, Jesus expects his church to correct one another in his name, but not as the world does. Not for condemnation, but for restoration. I think here's three reasons why we don't do it. Number one, levity. Levity. Levity means to take lightly. You might say something, you might pass the buck and say, it's not my place to judge other people. Hold on. Keep reading. Understand that a little more clearly. One of the reasons why we take sin lightly is because we don't realize how deadly it is. The Puritans called sin the cancer of the soul. When we treat sin with levity, we quickly resort to to America's favorite verse, judge not. And we point to it as a prohibition for correction when in reality, it's actually a prescription for correction. This is how you're supposed to do it. So when studied in context, that verse is teaching both when and how correction should occur, not that it never should. Another reason is insecurity. This is another reason why we don't do it. It's like, who am I to tell someone else what to do? And I would say there is a grain of truth to that. While it is true that we have no right to force our opinions on other people, we do have a responsibility to encourage fellow believers to be faithful to God's Word. And if you believe that the Bible is the authority of God, and you have a genuine love for God, and that's what you profess, 
and you don't, then if that's you, then you don't have to feel weak or insecure when it's time to confront. Because what you're actually doing is you're not appealing to your authority, you're appealing to a higher authority for the care of that person. That promise, Matthew 18, 20, for where two or three are, ga- are gathered, there I am among them, right? We love that verse. It's not talking about corporate worship. It's talking about biblical correction. So he will be present as you go to do the hard thing that he is asking us to do. Uh, kids are good at this. They don't have a problem with this. I, I think about Eleanor will go and tell Elliot about something that mommy and daddy said don't do, and she has no shame or reserve about it. Your kids? Just mine? Okay. So maybe that explains why Jesus started this chapter by saying that we need childlike faith. Kids aren't afraid to remind each other of the rules. And there's that kind of silly, dare I say dumb saying, rules were meant to be broken. Not really. I mean, maybe sometimes. Sometimes God's rules were not meant to be broken. All right, if you break God's rules, God's rules are going to break you. And you're going to end up seeing a lot of pain and shame and regret in your life. And God was saying, I tried to warn you. I tried to warn you. So insecurity is another one. Complacency is another one. Isn't it God's job to show people when they are wrong? Oh, man. Yes, kind of. But keep, please keep reading. Only, yeah, only God convicts of sin and only God can change a heart. But one of the main ways he does that is through his body that is the church. As the church, we are his hands, his feet, and we speak his words to one another. And often God uses his people to speak his words to alert fellow sinners of our collective need to repent. See Paul to Peter in Galatians 2, verse 11. Next question, why should we confront sin? Well, there's a very simple answer to that. Because as Jesus has been to us, so are we to be to others. Here's a great question. Did Jesus do Matthew 18, 15 with us first? Yes. In the most intentional, humble, sacrificial, loving way possible. Because if you think about it, Jesus was leaving heaven. And Jesus leaving heaven was the greatest confrontation that ever has happened or ever will happen. And what was the purpose of that confrontation of sin? It was the restoration of sinners. Romans 5, 8. But God shows his love for us. And that while we stood condemned, while we needed to be corrected, while we were still sinners, he died for us. And it was Romans 2, verse 4. It was his kindness that led us to repentance. Not his chronic voicing of of his disapproval with how we were living. It was his sacrificial labor of, of love that pursued the wayward. And so by now, here, let me kind of synthesize this. Matthew 18 is our approach. And Matthew 7 is our caution. Galatians 6, 1 is our goal. Matthew 18 is our approach. Matthew 7 is our caution. Galatians 6, 1 is our goal. So let me show you Galatians 6, 1. And let me just say this. Our responsibility is to help others deal with serious sins. And often that can be misunderstood. Often that can be taken out of context. And here's what helps us, Galatians 6.1. There's two words in here that I think put this in perspective. Let's read it together. Galatians 6.1. Brothers, if anyone is caught, underline that word caught in your Bible or whatever equivalent in the translation you're using, in any transgression... You who are spiritual, what does it mean to be spiritual? Well, again, location, location, location. The fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5, 22 through 23. 
love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. That's spiritual. Walking in the fruit of the Spirit is what it means to be spiritual. So you're, again, there's this eye toward the self. Let me examine myself. Am I modeling the fruit of the Spirit? Am I bringing the fruit of the Spirit to this wayward brother or sister right here? If any of you who are spiritual should restore, restore him in a spirit of gentleness, keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. So both of these words, what's happening? Well, they reflect the confronting, restoring love of Jesus. And what Paul does right here is he tells the Galatians to restore a brother who is caught in a trap. Transgression, the word for that is trespassing. It means you went too far. And so the Greek word for caught is prolimbano. I don't expect that to mean a whole lot to you other than it means that you are overtaken and surprised and now you are caught in a trap whether you realize it or not. So think about a fisherman. This would be like prolimbano. This would be caught. A fisherman who gets caught in his fishing net and stumbles overboard and is dangling off the side and is in danger of drowning. Okay, that is caught. That is the picture that Paul is giving us right here. And this fisherman and the man caught in sin have the same need. We have to understand that. It's for someone else to run to their aid and rescue them. And just as you would not watch a fisherman drown while tangled, neither should we stand by and watch another Christian get destroyed or entangled by sin. Paul also said, here's the next word, instead of canceling, Instead of condemning, restore. So the word there is catartizo, which basically means mend or repair. And it's used several times in the New Testament to describe a fisherman who is mending and repairing their nets after use for future use. So the idea is this needs to remain useful for its intended purpose. And that's the whole idea. Make something or someone useful for their intended purpose all over again. And just as nets are used to serve people in a specific way, so are we designed to serve God in a specific way. And so the goal of catartizo, of restoring, is to mend broken people and restore them to usefulness in God's kingdom. Understanding these words help us navigate this. And so Galatians 6.1 is helpful. Here's what often happens. We'll say something to our kids, I don't know about you. They'll have follow-up questions. They'll ask some more clarifying questions. There are follow-up questions right here. We don't have time to get into all of them, but I want to get into a few of them. So what about, what about, let me anticipate maybe what you might be thinking. I'm not a mind reader, but trying to just know the people and know myself, and like this is the questions that we ask. What about going to non-Christians? Okay, uh, if your brother, all right, he's talking to the church, talking to a Christian. Here's, here's what I want to say about this. We care about restoration whether someone is a Christian or not. This is, this is clear, like the Bible is wrought with references about caring about restoration. Jesus cared about our restoration before we were Christians, otherwise we wouldn't be Christians. And so we've, we've got to have that same idea. And so um, we're commanded to live at peace with everyone. And for the most part, these principles apply to conflicts with non-Christians. So when you do uh, maybe attempt Matthew 18 with someone who doesn't, believe the same things about the most important things, don't expect them to act like a Christian. <laughs> okay, Don't expect them to care a whole lot about all this Christianese, like restoration, forgiveness, grace, humility, forbearance. Okay, like, you know, No category for that necessarily. Not, or not as compelling of a category. 
But instead of quoting the Bible, here's what you could do. You could appeal to some common interests. Hey, this could preserve your marriage. This could protect your reputation. This could keep the kids in our neighborhood safe. And I think we all want that, right? So you're not necessarily bringing the Bible because that's, that's, they're not there yet. But doing this, here's what it does. It can be a form of witnessing. And God can restore them, not only to you, but also to himself. It doesn't always go that way, but it can go that way. And it's worth, God's idea, God, God has the best ideas. God's ideas win. And so let me go with God's idea and see how it goes. All right? How about going to authority? What about confronting authority? I think that this is an important issue. I want to say our responsibility to confront sin doesn't vanish because someone is in a position of authority over us. In fact, one of the most compelling signs of spiritual maturity and spiritual wisdom and self-awareness is the ability, dare I say skill, from heaven to appropriately confront power. To appropriately confront authority. How do you do that? Three ways, with a lot of grace. Regardless of the position that 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 person is in, you need to understand that you're still dealing with a sinner nonetheless. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And go, go with grace in tow. With a lot of humility. Make sure it's a big enough deal to bring up before you go there. Because there's a good chance it could impact some, some, some dynamics going forward. And you know that whole part about Matthew 18 that says, you know, make sure this is established by a couple of witnesses. Maybe get some outside counsel from a safe, trusted person who's qualified to speak into it. Am I seeing this correctly? And should I actually bring this up? Next, with a lot of clarity. Um, three examples of confronting authority in Scripture. Daniel did it. Nehemiah did it. And this woman who you may not even realize is in the Bible, but she did something really courageous. Her name is Abigail. She did it. Daniel did it to the, the, the powers um, in, in exile. Um, Nehemiah did it to the Persian king, and Abigail did it to King David. And here's what all three of them had in common, and this is why their confrontations prevailed. They were very clear. They were very clear on what was the issue and what the desired outcome was in persuading those in positions of authority to their case, and it actually won them over. Here's another question. What if I don't have all the facts and it could be a misunderstanding? Okay, here's what you do. You need to go tentatively. If you don't have all the facts and it could be a misunderstanding, go tentatively. Because many offenses are the result of misunderstandings or false expectations, but not outright sins, not ongoing sins. And that's why it's wise to confront when it's in question in a tentative manner, unless you have clear firsthand knowledge that a wrong has been done, here's what you do. This, this may help. Assume the best and then address the rest. Open yourself up to the possibility that you have not assessed the situation correctly. Happens all the time. And doing so will usually promote a more relational, conversational tone instead of defensiveness or self-righteousness. Usually a good play in marriage. There you go. Here's a few questions. Can you help me understand? That's a pretty disarming, non-threatening way to bring up something. 
Or can I get your permission to check out a perception? When you did this, I took it this way. Is that fair or did I miss something? My expectation was that this was, would happen. Was that a fair expectation to begin with? Now let's talk about expectations for just a moment before, before we wrap up. What is a fair expectation? Have you ever thought about this? Do you have fair expectations for the people in your life? Well, here's, here's how you can know. It's very, very simple. Fair expectations are realistic. Like it could happen and it probably should happen. Okay, that's a fair expectation. Uh, realistic expectations are spoken. We're not mind readers, guys. We, we, we actually have to communicate, I expect this. So fair expectation is spoken. And then a fair expectation is agreed upon. Has that person agreed to the terms of your expectations or are you holding them to an expectation that they never agreed to to begin with? And finally, fair expectations are conscious. You actually know you have them. And you're conscious that this is something that you're holding another person to. Guess why so many conflicts escalate? Unfair expectations. Unclear expectations. Last question, what if the first conversation doesn't resolve it? Well, the Greek word for go in Matthew 18, 15 implies continuous actions. So that old saying, if at first you don't succeed, try again. So here's a way to think about that. If at first you don't succeed, discern and return. Discern, seek counsel after that first conversation. Don't gossip, but get some good counsel. Give others time to think about it. Give God some time to work. Leave room that you might just overlook this and not bring it up again. And then, if you can't overlook it, return. Go again, seeking to resolve it between the two of you. If not, and you can't overlook it, it's time for steps two through four in verses 16 and 17. We're going to deal with those next Sunday. I hope you'll be back. What's the common thread in all this? Well, it's very simple. Jesus came to confront sin in order to restore sinners. And that's what we're doing in all of this. We relate to one another as sinners who have been saved by grace. We're sinners who need grace, and we're sinners who offer grace. And none of us want to live in a world relationally where that's not available. And so here's a few questions to think about. And if you would, just bow your heads and open your hearts. And then I'm going to pray that these would apply personally for us. But I just want to, like, right where you sit, would you just think about these questions? Is there something that you just need to overlook? And you're making it a much bigger deal than it actually should be? Think about it. Is there something that you just need to overlook and cast it on the cross and move on? You'll be glad you did. Is there someone you need to lovingly confront on God's terms? If so, go with the promise of God's presence in Matthew 18, 20. For two or three, gather in my name, there am I among them. And lastly, is there someone who you owe a sincere apology? That's repentance. And repentance brings refreshment to every part of our lives. Father, we thank you for the confrontation of the cross that led to our restoration. We humble ourselves as sinners 
who are also sinned against. And we come before you with our collective need. And we thank you that you show us how to do what the world just can't figure out. And that's confrontation that leads to restoration. Give us this foundation in Jesus' name. Amen.